verses 21 through 34 can be found on page 746 in your pew Bible. Luke 22, 21 through 34. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. May God bless the reading of his word. So we have communion today before the sermon because it puts us in the same position that the disciples were in when Jesus first spoke this passage that Jason just read. You see, they had just celebrated communion, the Lord's Supper, the Passover together, and then three incidents follow. There's three incidents here. First, you have the prediction of Judas Judas betrayal. Then you have the discussion about who's the greatest. And then you have the prediction that Peter and the disciples will all fall away. Now, it's actually Luke who put these things together. Matthew and Mark tell about the same three incidents, but they tell them about much different places. You know, the whole the uh, prediction of Judas' betrayal in Matthew and Luke comes before the Lord's Supper. Here in Luke, it comes after the Lord's Supper. The uh, discussion of who's the greatest in Matthew and Mark comes chapters earlier in Matthew and Mark. But here it comes right after the Lord's Supper. And then the uh, prediction of Peter and the disciples falling away. That comes later in Matthew and Mark. In Gethsemane, after they had finished the Lord's Supper, after they left the upper room, as they were on their way to Gethsemane, then Jesus tells about that Peter will fall away and the other disciples with him. But Luke takes these three passages, one from chapters earlier, one from just before the Lord's Supper, and then one from after the Lord's Supper, and he puts them all here together right after the Lord's Supper. He's trying to tell his readers something. And he's trying to tell us something by the way he ordered these accounts. 
So the Lord's Supper has just finished the Passover meal. They've just celebrated it together. And we have just finished the Lord's Supper together. And Jesus had just told them, as we read for you, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus has just told them, and as we've just read in the context of communion, this means that I'm going to die for you. My body is going to be killed for you. My blood is going to be poured out for you. Jesus has just told them that. And now Luke groups together topically things that happen in different places to make a point. Here is what Jesus did for us. Here is what the disciples did for him. And Luke is not talking just about those disciples. He's talking to his readers. He's talking to his 21st century readers, not just his first century readers. This is what Jesus did for us. Now the question becomes, what will his disciples do for him? And so we see his disciples do three things. Judas denounces him. The other disciples uh, depreciate him. And then Peter denies him. And the eleven desert him. We'll take a look at that. We'll look at the failings, the failures of those first disciples. Luke is really drawing a great deal of attention to this. We see the extraordinary sacrifice of Christ. And then we see these deplorable failures from his disciples. And Luke is putting these things to, juxtaposing them right side by side, so that his readers and us, that we can say, we celebrate communion. Now we're not going to respond to Jesus the way they did. So let's look first at how they responded and how Luke is urging us not to respond to the sacrifice of Jesus. So turn with me to page 746. We begin with chapter 22, verses 21 to 23. In the context of the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, verse 21, The hand of him who is going to betray me is with my hand on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Pay particular note to verse 21. The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. This is the first response of a disciple. Jesus says, this is my body. I'm going to die for you. This is my blood. It's going to be poured out for you. And Jesus looks around and he sees Judas is there. And he says, one of you will betray me. Now, the New Testament never tells us why Judas betrayed Jesus. We have no way of knowing. Presumably, it's not important. Because maybe we have our own potential reasons. There are things that we can do to betray Jesus. And maybe our motives will be different from him. But the reality remains that, that we could potentially fall into that same sin of betrayal. 
In his book, The Test, no, no, the, the Case for Faith, Lee Strobel tells the story of Charles Templeton. Now, I tell you this story, not to say that Charles Templeton betrayed Jesus, but to set up another story of somebody who I think is likely betraying Jesus, to show you what it can look like today to betray Jesus. But Charles Templeton started out his career as an evangelist. He and Billy Graham were colleagues. And in fact, for a while, Charles Templeton was more famous than Billy Graham, spoke to bigger crowds than Billy Graham. But at some point in his career, according to the story as Lee Strobel tells it, early in his career, he had a crisis of faith. He, he, he read in one, one pictorial magazine that used, was Life, Life magazine, no longer published today, I think, but Life magazine. He saw a picture of children dying from famine. And he says, why would God allow this? He says, it's not what we do, it's what God does. Now, okay, environmental science was in its infancy then. And the reality really is that famine is largely or significantly a part of what we do. It's not what God has done. A famine is highly influenced by desertification, by the cutting down, the rampant cutting down of the forests creates desert, which perpetuates famine. You know, of course, Templeton didn't know that. But he, he saw the famine. He says, why does God allow this to happen? And then he looked around the world and saw various plagues. And he attributed that to God. And then he thought about the doctrine of hell. And he said, I just can't get my mind around this. I can't believe these things. And he left his faith. Now, I would not think that that's betrayal. It's a sad, sad story. And even Templeton, apparently, in the interview, regretted it because he confessed to Lee Strobel that he misses Jesus, but he hasn't been able to find his way back. That's a sad story, but, but I don't think that's betrayal. Let me tell you another story which I think is betrayal. Bart was a youth when he gave his life to Christ. He was going through some turmoil, you know, just the whole transition to adulthood or trouble in the family, whatever it was. He was going through some personal, emotional, psychological turmoil. The same kind of thing that actually brought me to Christ, not trouble in my family, but just this whole transition from youth to adulthood is, you know, it's fraught with peril. It's just a really confusing time. He came to faith. And he came so soundly to faith that he decided for college he would go to Moody Bible College. Probably the most, undoubtedly, the most famous Bible college in America. He would go to study Bible, learn more about Jesus. He gave his life to Christ, now he wanted to serve Christ. And when he finished at Moody Bible College, then he went to Wheaton College, one of the famous American Christian schools, colleges, to get a college degree. Moody, he couldn't get a, Moody Bible School, he couldn't get a, a college degree, so he, he finished his degree at Wheaton. And then he decided to go into ministry. And while he went into ministry, he also went to, for a Ph.D. program at a liberal seminary. Now, a, a seminary where most of the faculty who teach Christian theology don't believe in Christ. Now, some people can go to liberal schools to, for a Ph.D. program and survive. But somewhere along the way, as he was pastoring a church, and as he was studying for this, his doctorate, he gave up the faith. Again, a sad story. Today he calls himself an agnostic rather than an atheist. But still not betrayal yet. A sad story. 
renouncing Christ, leaving Christ, but still not betrayal. But what he's done since then is he's made his living as a university professor of religion, writing books which take historical facts and spin them in the worst possible light to undermine historic Christianity. See, as long as it was him leaving his faith, it's a sad story. But now it's him developing his career in a way and making a living off of hurting other people's faith. And this is basically a denunciation or betrayal of Christ. It can be done today. You know, Hebrews 6 knew about this sort of thing. Hebrews 6, chapter, verses 4 to 6 says, it warns about those who've been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, those who've experienced Jesus. If they fall away, it says, it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again. This is what it could be for us. You know, take communion. And then somewhere along the line, not just you know, drift from the faith, a lot of people drift, not just lose faith, but then spend our time. Some of the most aggressive evangelists for atheism are people that used to believe and then got upset with the church or just quit practicing their faith and kind of drifted away and then spent their effort as apostles for atheism. And this text warns us that it is possible to have a living faith it is possible to have an experience of God. It's possible to take communion and then turn away from him. Now, just a little footnote. If some of you are theologically informed and you know the debate between Calvinists and Arminians, look, if you don't know the debate between Calvinists and Arminians, it's okay. Take three minutes now and drift. I'm going to call you back in three minutes. But for those of you who know the difference between Calvinists and Arminians, look, you probably don't know real Calvinism. Because what people are taught today about Calvinism is not authentic, genuine Calvinism. I've read Calvin. I've studied with the Calvinists. Both the Calvinists and the Arminians, everybody agrees until recently. The last hundred years has been a few wrong people who've taught otherwise. But everybody has always agreed that you can have an experience of God and then turn away whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. They disagreed about what that experience of God meant, whether you were truly saved or not truly saved. But the point is this, coming back to everybody, whether you're a Calvinist or Arminian, everybody, those of you who drifted, I didn't give you entirely three minutes, but I gave you enough. But coming back, the, uh, the point is this, the reality is there, that we can have, whether it's true saving faith or not true saving faith, whether you never had faith or you lose your faith, the reality is there. We can have an experience of God like Judas did. And we can betray Christ like Judas did. It's, now, by betraying Christ, again, I don't mean drifting away. I mean moving away and then opposing faith. That can happen to us. And so, what do we do about it? 
we stay close to God. We stay in Scripture. We stay in prayer. Um, there was an old hymn by Robert, Rob, Robert Robinson who recognizes some of this reality. He says this in the hymn, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here is my heart. Take and seal it for thy courts above. This should be our prayer today. This should be our prayer often. There are a lot of incentives, a lot of short-term things we gain, long-term things we lose, but there's a lot of short-term things we gain if we just drift away, if we walk away, if we turn away. We're prone to wander, Lord. We feel it. We know it. We're prone to leave the God, even the God we love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Various challenges will come into all of our lives. Let this be our prayer, that we will not turn away, that we will not betray. The second response to Jesus after communion is that Judas denounced him. Look at the eleven. Right after Jesus says, you know, right after Jesus says, I'm going to die for you. And, and, and right after Jesus says, one of you is going to help kill me. Then what do the disciples do? You know, Luke he puts this in, in juxtaposition to show what the, the rest of the disciples, you know, Judas is a bad guy, but, but Luke doesn't want to villainize him. Look at the rest of these disciples and what do they do? They sit around debating who's the greatest of them all. You know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the greatest of us all? Can you see how that depreciates Christ? Look at where Christ started from, in heaven. He's divine. Who can be great compared to Christ? Look at what Christ has just said he's going to do. He's going to die for them. Who can be compared to his origin? And who can compare to the way he lived? And instead of saying, look at this, look at Christ, look how great he is, what they start doing is drawing straws among, okay, which of us is the greatest? You know, it's like standing on the surface of the moon where two people have a flashlight trying to decide who has the better flashlight. My mag light is better than yours. I'm sorry, on the surface of the sun. Standing on the surface of the sun, debating who has the better flashlight. In the presence of Christ, how can there be any question of any of us being great compared to where he came from and what he's done for us? None of us will ever be divine, and probably none of us will ever give our lives for other people. And they didn't, mostly. How can there be any discussion of who's great? And so they devalue Christ. They depreciate Christ by debating who's the greatest. Just this week, 
I was reading some discussion about leadership. And it was an interview with a famous pastor. And the editor of the Christian magazine introduced it this way. Every week, he preaches to 11,000 people in 10 separate video locations. Who's the greatest of us all? This pastor, you know, is the, the article said, introducing him, said, he's the third most frequently downloaded sermons from, from the web. Who's the greatest of us all? Do you understand that we're all derivative? No matter how good a guy is on the pulpit, we're all derivative? I mean, Jesus taught the stuff. He originated it. We're all just, you know, in, in, plagiarists. And you think, who's the greatest preacher? Well, of course, Jesus. And to hold any other discussion about who's a great preacher or pastor devalues Jesus. Why are we, ha how does that question make sense? Like standing on the sun with a flashlight in your hand. You know, there's only one. I, 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 maybe you know more. You know, you have more experience collectively than I have individually. But I think there's only one famous Christian leader who ever got fame from service. I mean, Mother Teresa, right? She became famous through service. Maybe there's more. But that's the only one that comes to my mind right ahead. All the rest of them get fame through being the great. Mother Teresa got fame from serving the lowly. And Jesus says, this debate about greatest, this comparative evaluation, is really ridiculous. He said, that's not how you become great in the kingdom of God. How do you become great in the kingdom of God? You live like I live. You serve. So let Mother Teresa be our model of greatness. Now, what does it mean to us? Because we're never going to be preaching to 18,000, probably. If you actually ever do remember, you know, you, you started here. Remember me when you get there? But... For the rest of us, what does it mean? Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt kind of like devalued? Have you ever said to yourself, because you wouldn't say this out loud, right? Other people might hear you. But have you ever said to yourself, you know, look how hard I work. And they don't care. I don't get all the appreciation. I don't get any of the appreciation that I deserve. Look how hard I try and nobody appreciates what I do. Who is the greatest of them all? First of all, Jesus tells the disciples right then, he does appreciate, and there is glory awaiting. How about, let's say this, look how hard I work. Look how much I serve. But these people don't seem to appreciate Jesus. Because it's not about people appreciating us. Right? It's not about us being acknowledged and great. It's about Jesus. So we have Judas who denies Jesus. We have the 11 who depreciate him. So Judas who denounces Jesus. We have the 11 who appreciate him. And now let's turn third of, uh, third of all to verses 31 to 34. We read this. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Not only do they depreciate Jesus, but now they're all going to desert Jesus. And Peter will go so far as to deny him. This is something that we can also do. You know, we can do this at university. 
Uh, just this week, I was reading about the history of universities. There was an article in, the, in Christianity Today about, you know, what do you gain from going to a Christian university versus secular universities? There was a time about 100 years ago, about 90% of the schools in America were Christian. They were run by churches, well, Christian. They were run by churches, they were run by denominations, etc. And now, there's a small percentage of schools are still religious schools. What happened was that, you know, people felt constrained by the church, and basically, the university became a place for freedom from church control. The universities were set up so we don't have the church controlling us. So we don't have religion controlling us. And so, universities today tend to be rather liberal and often antagonistic to faith, and certainly antagonistic to, uh, to uh, absolutistic values. There will be plenty of times, probably, for most of you, when you'll be sitting in class and somebody will make disparaging remarks, not just about Christians. Let's, let's disparage Christians. You know, sometimes we do stupid stuff. If somebody faults us for something stupid we did, let's admit it, we did stupid stuff. We still do stupid stuff. But if somebody disparages God or faith or Jesus, we can do the disciple thing. We can slip out. We can kind of duck. We can desert Christ. Or we can speak. Not an antagonistic word, but a winsome word for him. You know, what are we going to do? It's not just in school and work. You know, we're, hey, we live in Massachusetts, right? Now, I'm not a big fan of, I won't, well, anyway. I, I'm going to say something positive about Rick Santorum. I don't want you to think that I'm urging you to vote for Rick Santorum. I won't tell you what I think of Rick Santorum. But notice the abuse he takes because of his position on abortion. And let's acknowledge that it's not, you know, his position is tighter now than it used to be. But he's always been pretty strong against abortion. You know, you see the abuse he takes because of his position on abortion. And this, and this illustration is not about abortion. It's just, the point is this. In a state like Massachusetts, if graciously, if appropriately, if the right context, somehow it comes up whether what our position is on, you know, uh, had, uh, on extramarital heterosexuality, what our position is on uh, homosexuality, what our position is on abortion, you know there's going to be some frustration, some anger, some abuse. Not just against us, but against the name of Christ, against the Bible, against Christian standards. Now we got a choice. We can do what the disciples did and we can desert. We can duck. Or we can say, now here. Here's the gospel. Here's what God says. Maybe you've read about Chick-fil-A and the movement lately against Chick-fil-A, you know, the, the economic movement against Chick-fil-A, because Chick-fil-A contributes to uh, causes that oppose gay marriage. And so now the movement to boycott Chick-fil-A. Well, there's going to be antagonism. When the antagonism comes, we don't go looking for it. It's not like every, everybody we work with has to know our view on gay marriage. I mean, like, who cares, right? I don't need to know your view. You don't need to know mine. But if it comes up, do we duck or do we speak for Jesus? Do we desert Christ or do we affirm him? Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood given for you. And then we see what the disciples did. And Luke is just telling us, when Jesus dies for us, we stand for him. We stand with him. We don't betray him. We don't denigrate him. We don't denounce him. We don't depreciate him. We don't deny him. We don't duck away from him. There's one final point I have to make in conclusion. None of these things that the disciples did wrong 
should even be possible for us. None of these things should be a threat for us. God has done two things for us. He sent Christ to die for us, but he's done one other thing for us. He, spent, he sent his spirit to live within us. They did not have the spirit when they took communion at that Lord's Supper. They did not have the spirit, and so one of them denounced, one, all of them depreciated, and all of them deserted. Because they did not have the spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, the spirit comes on those disciples, and they are changed. After Acts chapter 2, none of them denounce. None of them depreciate. None of them desert. They all stand under the power of the Spirit by the grace of God. This is the kind of people we are. We are not the disciples in Luke 22. We are the disciples in Acts 2. May God be gracious to us. May we stand for him by the power of the Spirit he's given us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would be with us so that these things might be true of us, that we might stand for your Son. Jesus, we thank you for your death for us and ask that you might be at work in our hearts, that we might be faithful to you. In your name we pray. Amen.